seat. Hopes and fears are what we're talking about this Christmas season, and we're thinking about the hopes that come with Christmas, but also some of the fears that we may impose on our lives as a part of that as well. And, and one of the things that we think about at Christmas time is peace. And I see that at work online this year. I've seen several people, maybe you're one of them, it's okay, who've posted on Facebook or Instagram, you don't have to buy me a gift for Christmas this year. All I want is world peace. Well, that's a pretty big ask in my mind. Um, and you probably want that with a couple or three other billion people on the face of the earth. But the problem is, it only takes a few people who don't want that, right? It only takes a few people who are not interested in peace to cause all kinds of discord for thousands and even millions of others. We see that on an international scale, right? We see wars that go on for years and even decades, and it seems like there's no real winners, and it's an amazing uh, waste of both resources and more importantly, the lives that are involved and the lives that are lost because of that. And all it takes is one or just a very few, a group of people who have decided that they don't have enough territory or power or resources, and they're going to take what belongs to someone else. And then people pay the price for a very long time. And what we want is peace. Now, that's true on an international level. It's also true on an interpersonal level, right? We live in a very polarized society where people take sides and they stake out their claims and, and that's it. And even though you may hold some things in common because you disagree on certain things, man, you just can't have anything to do with one another. We're, we're walking into this holiday week in which there's going to be all kinds of gatherings, right? Friends and there's going to be family gatherings and there's probably one person at least in some of those gatherings that you know is going to feel compelled to correct everybody else's politics, right? And they're going to tell you exactly what they think and what you should think. And if you disagree, you're just wrong. And you're going to face that this week. And it's going to be difficult and you're not going to feel peace with that person at all. And that happens for, with politics, but lots of other reasons as well that we can find ourselves at odds with people. But it's not just people. It's also with God. Over and over, you and I have chosen to put things in, in places that are more important than God. We have chosen that there are things that matter to us more than what God wants. We call that idolatry or sin. It leads us ultimately to sin. And so we have this barrier between us and God. These things that I've decided are more important than Him. And so we're separated from God. We are not at peace with Him. Today I want us to think about that. And think about what the Christmas season actually has to do with peace, what Jesus has to do with peace. And to get at that, what I'd like to do is to turn with really what is the, the heart of the Christmas story. I mean, if you really thought about, okay, tell me the story of Christmas, lots of us would turn to the story that we find in Luke chapter 2. Matthew tells the story, Luke tells the story, but I think this is the classic retelling. Luke chapter 1, he gives us some background, some prophecy, but then chapter 2 tells the story, and it begins with as wide an angle lens as we find in the whole New Testament. We find Luke beginning this not just with Jesus or Mary and Joseph or even the town of Bethlehem, but the whole Roman Empire, the emperor himself. That's where Luke starts the story, Luke chapter 2, 
verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Luke sets this story. He places it in actual human history. Why is that? Because he wants his readers to know this is not a myth. This is not something that someone made up that they sort of wanted to be true. This actually happened in human history while Caesar Augustus was on the throne in Rome. Another thing that Luke is doing is setting up a contrast that runs all the way through chapter 2 and really through the whole book of Luke between Caesar Augustus, who really could claim to be the most powerful man who had ever lived, at least up to that point. More territory, more soldiers, more everything than anyone else before him. A contrast between Caesar and this baby. Between Caesar and God himself. Because you see, he begins with that decree, right? There's going to be a census. It's not really accounting, okay? They counted people, but what this is all about is taxes. Because running an empire takes money. Keeping up the Roman legion took money. And so Caesar needs money. He's going to count people, but when you got counted, you got taxed. So this is all about bringing in money for Rome. And he says everyone's going to get taxed. Everyone throughout the empire, even in the small towns, the villages, people that everyone else has forgotten. And that means that everyone has to go to their hometown. Now the scholars debate exactly what that meant. Maybe it meant that you had to go to the place where you were born, all right? Or maybe it meant that you go to your ancestral home, so your family's hometown. Or maybe you went somewhere where you owned property. Either way, you got to go to your whatever is considered your home. And so there's this man named Joseph, a man who now lives in Galilee in the north of what we call Israel today in a town called Nazareth. His, ma his name again is Joseph, and he's got to go from Nazareth in Galilee south to Judea near where Jerusalem was to a town called Bethlehem. And Luke is telling us that even though it looks like Caesar Augustus has issued this decree that he's in charge, that everyone moves because he says move. What's really going on is that God is moving this son of David named Joseph in the royal line from the place he's living now in Nazareth to Bethlehem, to the city of David, to the place the prophet said this baby would be born. You see, this is God acting using Caesar, not this most powerful man in the world issuing his own decree. And so Joseph takes his betrothed, his fiancée, Mary, who is already pregnant, which would have created all kinds of scandal in the ancient world. Who's done something wrong here? Both Mary and Joseph have received a message from an angel saying, this is a miracle. God has acted. No one has sinned. God has just performed an incredible miracle, and she is pregnant with the Son of God. And so they go to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem, and then the time comes. We pick it up again in verse 6. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. 
She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for him, for them. So the time comes, and it's told in a very matter-of-fact, sort of everyday kind of language. It's just this baby is born, and we're told a couple things about the baby. Number one, it's wrapped in cloths. Some of you remember the old language, swaddling clothes, right? It's just wrap a baby in pieces of cloth. And the idea was in the ancient world, if you wrap them up straight, then their limbs would grow straight. Now, we know they grow straight, basically whatever you do, okay? But that's what they thought. And that was normal, okay, that part's normal. What's not normal is the baby is laid in a, literally, feeding trough. That's not normal. That's not where you put a baby. Now, nowhere in the Gospels does anybody say anything about cattle lowing, sheep. There's nothing about that, okay? We're never told anything about animals being there when Jesus was born. But where there's a feeding trough... There's probably feed, and where there's feed, there's animals, right? And we don't know that for sure, but that would make sense. And that's where we get all that. So what's going on here? What we find is that there's no, there's no place for them to stay. There's no guest room available for Mary and Joseph. No family has an extra room. There's nowhere to rent. There's no Airbnb. There's nothing, okay? There's no place to stay. So she's laid her baby in a feeding trough, which means they're probably staying in a place where animals usually live. Could be a cave somewhere out of town that was very common for a place to keep animals. If it was in town, it very likely was some kind of two-story structure where the family lives upstairs and the animals live downstairs. Whatever the situation, it sounds very aromatic, right? Okay, that's where they are, okay? It's not an HGTV dream home nursery. That's not what we're talking about. There they are in a place that usually houses animals. Maybe they were there, then maybe they're not. But the baby is, is laying in a manger because there's nowhere else. That's just it. And then the scene moves. And the very first announcement of this birth is probably not what most people would have expected because it's to these shepherds. They're shepherds out in a field and and shepherds didn't have the best reputation. I mean, they're with animals all the time, which means they are ceremonially, ritually unclean, can't go to church. So they never show up at church. They're known as not always remembering what belongs to them versus what belongs to others, okay? Sometimes known as thieves. So they don't have the best reputation, but that doesn't seem to matter to God. And we pick up again in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, which means it's probably not winter time because they didn't stay out overnight in the winter because it's too cold, even in Israel, to do that. So it's probably summertime, okay? An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified, like everybody else who sees angels in the Bible. They're afraid of this. And so God has chosen these men to speak to. And what is said, here we go, verse 10. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Now, what, what strikes me here is that the people of Israel thought, we'll pick that up in just a second. The, the people of Israel thought that sort of the, the intersection of heaven and earth was in the temple, in Jerusalem. 
Actually, the very center of the temple, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was seen as sort of a throne for God. And that's where heaven and earth came together, where God and humanity met. But on this night, it seems that it's not the temple. It's Bethlehem and this field that surrounded Bethlehem where this angel shows up and scares everyone to death and says, I've got good news that will cause great joy for all the people today in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, Jesus. Now, it doesn't say Jesus is born because the shepherds wouldn't know who Jesus was anyway, right? Just baby, just been born, not even named at this point. And so three titles are given. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So his name is, his name is going to be Jesus, but... But who is he? Well, the shepherds hear it. He is Savior. We've already talked about that some in this series, that he is the Savior of humanity. He saves us from all the problems that our sins cause, and it's a multitude of them. He is the Messiah, which means he's the king. Again, a contrast between what God is doing over here versus the man who thought he was the real king, the emperor, the man in Rome, Caesar Augustus. And Jesus is going to proclaim a kingdom, the kingdom of God. So he is Savior, he is King, he is the Lord. The word that the people of Israel use to describe God. He's the Savior, the King, he's God. That's what the angel says. That's who we're talking about. And then we get evidence that heaven and earth have met in this place at this night. Well, let's pick up verse 12 really quickly first. This will be a sign to you that you'll find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Well, every baby would have been wrapped in claws, but not every baby lying in a feeding trough. And so they are going to know when they find him. And then, verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appears. This is an army of angels. That's what we're talking about versus the Roman army. With, an, with the angel, praising God and saying, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now when the, when the shepherds hear this, what the angels say, they take off because they want to find this baby and they find him and they worship him and the story goes on from there. But, but that message from the angels, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, it's not an accident that the angel came to proclaim peace because there is this, this great contrast again. Because the peace of Rome was, was a, a, a source of pride for the emperor. That there had never been a time of peace like there was right then. Those living in the Roman Empire had peace like no one had experienced before. People were not going to war against one another. Why? Because Rome enforced the peace, right? You didn't stand up. You didn't get noticed. You didn't say anything. You just kept your head down, your mouth closed. And if you did, you might get ignored by Rome. Because if you get noticed, you probably don't have long to live. The peace is enforced from the outside. But this piece, this is a whole different thing. This is a piece 
that is offered. This is a peace that is received by humanity. It is not enforced from above. It is given from above and received by us, by the people around Jesus. It's a gift to be received. This shalom, the people of Israel would have said in that day, this peace was about their relationship between them and God. And really, it points us to the lesson I want us to learn, that God offers the peace. He provides the peace, the only peace that really matters. There's lots of peace that could be offered, and Rome offered peace, but it wasn't the peace that people wanted because it was just a shut-up-and-sit-down kind of peace, not here's-a-gift-you-can-receive kind of peace. Now, let's walk through this. What does this mean First of all, it means that God sent Jesus to create peace between us and Him. Part of the problem here is our sin problem. It goes back to that, right? What separates us from God, the barrier between us and God is all about our sin. And so Jesus came to pay the price for sin, to defeat the power of sin. Jesus took that problem away so there could be a relationship between us and God. And again, this is offered to us. It's not enforced upon us. It says God is offering us peace. We don't deserve it. We have again and again chosen other things before God. We have offended Him. We have driven Him away. And He loves us so much, He offers us peace anyway. He loves us so much, He offers us His love, His grace, a relationship with Him. That's what God has offered to every single one of us. And it's up to us to decide, will I receive that or not? Okay? So this peace, the only peace that really matters, is first and foremost about our relationship with God, but that's not the end of it. The peace that God offers, this peace that we have with God, should transform our relationships with others. When we have peace with other people, it's usually because we followed the model of peace that God has offered to us. And so the, the discord that we have with other people is caused by our actions, by our words, or their actions and their words. But when we follow God's example, what we're saying is, Even though that person doesn't deserve forgiveness, I'm going to offer it. Because you see, I didn't deserve forgiveness from God. I didn't deserve grace, but God offered it anyway. And so there could be peace. And so when there's peace between me and another person, it's because I've taken the model that God has given me and I've used it in my relationship with that person. Now, the critics might say, I mean, I've I've seen Christians at work And I've read enough history to know that you call Jesus the Prince of Peace, but man, it doesn't look like you guys have let him live up to that title because you don't get along very well yourselves and you don't get along very well with other people. In fact, Christians have, if you look back in Christian history, have gone to war against one another because they believed something different about Jesus. It doesn't look like Jesus brought a whole lot of peace even to his own followers. But here's the thing. That's not on Jesus. That's on us. Because that happens when we mess up. That happens when we fail to follow the example of peace that God has given us. When Christians fail to get that, yeah, we're going to mess up and we're not going to agree, but you know what? 
Because God loved us so much, he offered us forgiveness and grace, I'm going to love you so much that I'll offer forgiveness and grace, and I will receive it from you. When we follow God's model of peace, there can be peace among Christians, and there can be peace with people outside the church. But when we fail to follow that example, it doesn't take long until it gets off the rails. And we mess it up again and again and again. So as we think about our hopes and fears this Christmas, peace really is out there. It's a gift. And yeah, I'd love world peace, but you know, the song goes, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me, right? Because I'm not in charge. I can't enforce the peace from outside. But what I can do and what you can do is follow the model of peace that's been given us by God and let peace begin with me. Let's pray together. And we're thankful for this gift of peace that you have offered to us and that we can receive. We're thankful for what it does in our relationship with you, and we're thankful for how it can transform our relationships with each other. And God, we pray that you would allow that to happen, that you would be at work in us and show us just how this happens between us, that we want to be a people of peace, a people of shalom. So guide us in that. Prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.